We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply. The Boys in the Band podcast is brought to you in partnership with Giddy Stratospheres, the fantastic independent film by Laura Jean Marsh, set in the heart of the noughties indie scene. It's a story of furiously loyal friendship and a love song to an incredibly special time for music and mayhem, all set to the soundtrack of the best noughties indie tunes. A must-watch for any noughties indie fan. You can buy or rent the film on a host of platforms, including Amazon Prime, Sky Store and iTunes. But as part of our partnership with Giddy Stratospheres, we're delighted to be able to offer listeners to the Boys in the Band podcast an exclusive 20% discount to rent the film via Vimeo On Demand. Just follow the link in the podcast notes or post it on our social media and enter the promo code BOYSINTHEBAND at checkout. And you'll be able to stream the film for as little as £3.59. A terrific deal that's an absolute must for listeners to this podcast. This fantastic offer is available in the UK and Ireland only at the moment and runs until 10th of September. So go check it out. Giddy Stratospheres, a film about loss and love in the storm of guitars and broken glass that was the noughties UK indie music scene. Hello and thanks for joining us on the Boys in the Band podcast. I'm Richard Gallagher. And I'm Peter Smith. And on this week's show, we're joined by Taita and Andy from New Young Pony Club. And these guys came to the fore in the noughties with their blend of disco and electro punk. And of course, that huge track, Ice Cream, which they had from the very start. Now, it ended up taking them around the world, but Taita gives us an insight into how much care and attention went into getting the impact of Ice Cream's brilliant lyrics just right. When we were doing the original version, which is not what Ice Cream is now, I kind of came up with that first verse, I don't know, in like maybe 10, five, 10 minutes. And then it took me six months to write the second verse. It's <laughs> just like, I can't live up to it, it's too good. No, like flagellating for days about this second verse and then got the second verse. I mean, that's what I always want with lyrics is they're just these endless like, oh, bam, 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 you know? So it took a long time to get to that point. Yeah, such a great track, that one. Uh, one I still go back to. Uh, and I actually remember really vividly first hearing it and thinking thinking it was a cover mm. or or just trying to wonder what where they'd sampled this from because it just seemed instantly so familiar. That hook just lodged in my mind like it had always been there. And uh, <laughs> yeah, such a, such a good tune. And it's really great to have both Taita and Andy reminiscing together uh, about their time in the band. You know, they've still clearly got a, a great bond together, which made for a really interesting, open and honest conversation with some, some cracking stories. Yeah, there were some great stories in there, weren't there? Touring with Katy Perry. That was, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was as crazy as you can imagine it, it would be. Um, gigging in Hong Kong skyscrapers, gigging in Sri Lanka. Rich, capital of Kazakhstan, quick. Uh, Astana, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you didn't know it at the time, did you? No, we didn't, didn't know it. Well, yeah. Somehow we end up talking about Kazakhstan and Astana uh, during this podcast. The other thing about New Young Pony Club and just that sort of type of music as well, the crossover, you know, um, we mentioned it in the podcast how you could go to a gig and watch, you know, four guys with guitars and drums playing, you know, traditional indie music, guitar-driven indie music, and then you'd go to the club afterwards and be listening to this dance, punk, funk, whatever you end up calling it, new rave. That's a term they didn't particularly like, but 
you know, claps and cowbells. Was that, wasn't that the phrase, yeah. Rich? Isn't it? Just to sort of sum up that sort of uh, club tune you get around that time in the mid-noughties. Yeah, absolutely. Good, good, good times to uh, to reflect on. So and Andy gave us the full story. They also gave us the story behind their sort of evolving sound on their self-released second album, going back to working as a duo for their third album, um, how they had to call time on the band in the end, uh, but would quite fancy a reunion show somewhere down the line, maybe. So, uh, yeah, absolutely loads to enjoy on this one. One we really enjoyed doing. Uh, so here they are. Here's Saita and Andy from New Young Pony Club. All right, this week on the Boys in the Band podcast, we're delighted to be joined by Taisa and Andy from New Young Pony Club. Yeah, good to have you on, guys. I'm looking forward to this chat. Um, we always start off with our sound check. Three quick questions to get us warmed up. The first one is always, where are you? So, Tahita, where are you? Oh, I'm in my living room now. <laughs> <laughs> Connectivity issues, as ever. Yeah, I'm in London. I'm in um, Ali Pali, basically, where I live. I'm very near where I grew up in Tufnell Park, so. Oh. I'm just in North London as well. Great. Next up on the sound check, guys, we always ask our guests uh, what you're listening to at the moment. So, uh, Andy, let's come to you first. What's on What's on your playlist? Ooh, <clears throat> that's a toughie. Um, I mean, I, I manage artists now, so a lot of what I listen to is my own artists. <laughs> and then <laughs> I find that I'm like, I'm all kind of listened out, but um little sims has a new record out um yeah. which is damn good and the uh, salt stuff is always really good it's so hard to pick out artists these days isn't it it's like yeah, yeah. You, you know it's like really good tracks but um new caribou track quite like that that's good yeah. how about you then Taita? i'm not really listening to anything at the moment to be honest i'm studying a lot i'm working you know so it doesn't leave a lot of time, really. I tend to listen to old stuff anyway. I'm just revisiting yeah. my youth right now. I, I yeah. brought a box of old CDs and tapes out of the garage and, you know, I've basically been trying to get my tape player to work, which occasion, occasionally it does. So I've been <laughs> doing some early Boo Radleys and, oh, like, nice. you know, um, Chapter House, Slow Dive, loads of sort of like shoegaze I used to listen to when I was like, I don't know, 10, 11. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, going right back. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, the old, mi- old mixtape. They were great. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was trying to think when was the last time I sort of had to put a pencil through a tape and wind it to, to get the tape back onto the, the wheels. Yeah. Long time ago. Um, third question. Well, this is for you, Andy, really. Um, we just had Reading Festival this past weekend, and I've seen from your Insta that you've been getting out to some festivals yourself. So, um, yeah, what's it been like? I saw Latitude. You said to me Green Man, All Points East as well. So, What's it like being back out in the uh, festival crowd? Uh, fun, but weird, definitely. Especially the Latitude was the first one and it just felt very new and kind of, kind of... But then the crowds were also, like, not as euphoric as I'd hoped. Um, you know, I was thinking there'd be this surge of kind of like, yeah, we're back. But um, it all sort of felt very kind of run of the mill in some ways. So, yeah, I think... I, but the Green Man was really fun. That's amazing amazing festival i love that that was much that was a bit more kind of heart and soul there and all points east was yeah it was good it's good day out you know it's just incredible to see people reacting to bands again it is 
it is, it is really good. And you, and you know what? Actually, the bands actually, it's lovely watching the bands react to the audiences. You can see they've missed it so much. So yeah, no, it's good. Live music. Yeah, yeah, it's great, great to have it back. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, great to have it back. Um, and great to have you both on the podcast together as well. So we're going to wind the clock back now and uh, ask you both sort of how you actually started the band. So sort of how did you guys first meet and start making music together? And how did that then sort of meld into the formation of New Young Pony Club? Um, Can I that one? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm quite a reticent person. Um, and obviously that's very much not the fashion now, but I basically, I was sing- I'd sung with different bands and somebody said to me, oh, you should go to more parties and, you know, meet producers and stuff. And then maybe you'd get a bit further with things rather than just like home navel gazing and freaking out. So I took that advice and went to a tummy touch party and then somehow got introduced to the label manager and harassed him for 10 minutes about what a great singer I was. And he said, oh, I, I know a guy who's looking for a singer. That turned out to be Andy with his outfit, Organic Audio. So we did a track together for an album of his. And then through com- com- you know conversations about music and stuff that we loved, we found we had a lot of touchstones. And I, I kind of wanted to try and make a solo record. <laughs> um, so Andy had said, OK, I'll, I'll, why don't we try working together, writing together, and I'll produce. So that's how it started. And then we made, we spent a couple of years making music together. And then uh, we wrote a track which became Ice Cream, but basically Andy had to kind of remix it um, for it to be the ice cream that people know. And that was sort of when he, we sort of said around that time, oh, let's let's actually be in a, a, a band together rather than it just be, you know, him producing for me and writing with me. I didn't want to miss out. I could see, I could see where it was going, and I was like, "There's no way I'm going to watch this go around the world." <laughs> well, I was going to say when you when you end up writing a song like Ice Cream, like obviously so early on, I guess in the process, you obviously felt you're onto something good there. Um, you mentioned like the sort of the music uh, you guys shared an interest in. So, what were the early influences for you two guys? Well, we have a, a shared adoration of PJ Harvey. Um, we both have come, like I started out in punk bands, so did Andy uh, as teenagers and then kind of moved into more of a dance place or a hip hop place um, and then sort of did an about face and came back to kind of rock music. So, you know, we had that sort of love of disco. I always wanted to put together something that sounded like, you know, like Donna Summer fronting the Stooges or, you know, that was kind of like my thing. I was like, yes. This oh, yeah. Is- that's what you came into the studio saying at the beginning. That was it. That was your heart. I'd forgotten that. Yes, what you said. And I was like, yeah, that could work. Let's try and make that happen. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, you know, Andy, Andy's massively into um, the Stranglers, you know, those kind of like, I suppose, punk bands, but British punk bands, whereas I, I was sort of more into sort of the Stooges, Sonics, kind of American garage punk. You like the gritty garage stuff, yeah? I like the kind of more finessed, you know, produced, I guess, even though stragglers were pretty raw, but, you know, the the production was actually quite smooth in a way and made them sound really good. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. Punk acts as well, you know, like Talking Heads and Gang of Four. So, you know, there were a lot of things there that we kind kind of talked about and enthused about and we were excited to 
kind of make make more of that kind of music. And then obviously all this stuff started coming out of New York, which, you know, had a similar flavor like LCD and the Rapture. And I was like, okay, so this is, everybody seems to be, you know, on this tip, this is great. Yeah, absolutely. So you had this sort of wave coming, didn't you, really, of these sort of bands producing this sort of music, new rave, dance punk. What, did you ever have a favorite label for it? You're sticking your tongue out. <laughs> disco punk. I mean, we just, disco we just, punk. Used to, we, we used to like disco punk or, yeah, or, yeah, electro, you know, punk, I guess. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> anything. It was that thing again, you know, Donna Summer Stooges, you know, that encapsulated yeah. it. Mm, love it. So, um, you sort of mentioned there, Andy, perhaps you preferred the slightly more produced punk, et cetera. But I guess, you know, that's what you want if you're a partnership, isn't it? You want slightly different views that, that mix together. And as you said, they're mixed together into form a song like Ice Cream early on. So how, what are your memories of that song coming, uh, coming about, how that was written? You know, it started off as a different version. So, you know, obviously I can't speak about the lyrics, but, um, but in terms of the music, you know, we, we had this early, must find that early version, actually. I still don't know where it is, but we'll, we'll track it down. And it was just a kind of quite a funky kind of simple beat, I remember. But then it felt like the vocal was so strong. It needed better music. You know, the music that I'd done originally was just, was just didn't live up to, the, the, to this amazing kind of lyrical thing that, that Ty had put on it. So I, I don't know. I, and, I, and, and that's the weird thing. I, I, it came together so quickly that second version i literally did the bulk of that in three hours like I, I, you know it's one of those things where it just kind of happens you know quick quicker than you then you, you know then you really just i, I kind of prepared for you i don't know it's just one of those things it just sometimes it just all comes very quickly and nicely and, and happily and um i wish it happened more to be honest <laughs> but um but you know and, and then and then and then after that there was about 50 versions after that like once we got that core the groove and the strings and the bass and all that and i'd put all of that together then we kind of did so many mixes and edits and little versions and you know but I think that song really the key of it is uh, without I mean it's the groove but the the it's the, it's the vocal thing so you know I, I have to hand over to Taita for that one really. Yeah, well I mean I'm classically trained so I think it took me a long time to kind of find like the voice that felt like me because I can obviously you know sing operatically and had done that kind of stuff in bands before but it didn't you know the kind of gritty punk version of me wasn't in that voice so it took me a while to find it but I really did find it with that song with the first verse I mean when we were doing the original version which is not what ice cream is now I kind of came up with that first verse I don't know in like maybe 10 5 10 minutes and then it took me six months to write the second verse (laughs) just like I can't live up to it it's too good no like flagellating for days about this second verse and then got the second verse. I mean, the thing that I remember mainly is just wanting, cause I'd come from doing, being in bands, but always sort of temping in advertising agencies. And, you know, there was a, a time in my twenties when I really wanted to do copywriting and I loved, you know, I mean, I always like it when th- things are very succinct, but, you know, can be endlessly unpacked. So like a good slogan or a good mm-hmm. sound bite or a good, you know, in, in hip hop, you know, you'll get that one line that just makes you go, oh, Jesus. 
um, or in a good poem, you'll get that one line that everybody goes, <laughs> poetry recital or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, and I just wanted to write a song that was just full of them. I mean, that's what I always want with lyrics is there just to be these endless like, oh, bam, 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 you know. So it took a long time to get to that point with, with you know, the version before ice cream. And then Andy went off. And I, the thing that I remember is he was doing some DJing in maybe Barcelona, Spain, somewhere like that. And he said, oh, I've got this new version of ice cream, but I'm going to go, or the song, but I'm going to go and play it out to some crowds and see what they think. And basically uh. rang on the Monday morning was like, oh my God, people are freaking out for me deals in Barcelona. What was that like then? Because obviously that, uh, that when initially when you start playing live like that, Andy, but then you know when the single is actually released in February 2005, it sold out really quickly, did, get, did start gaining a lot of attention. So what was that initial feeling that like, oh my God, we do have a hit on our hands here? I mean, yeah, it's always, this is what you kind of crave for when, when you're a musician, really, I think. So everyone kind of was just like something that just connects instantly. And I, and actually, we didn't really know we had that when, you know, when we made it. It wasn't a case of like, you know, right, you know, tracks down. Yeah, that's a hit in the bag. Brilliant. It was just like, it was just another one of the tracks that we'd created, you know, and, 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 and yeah, like Ty said, we started playing it to people and sending it out to a couple of people. And it's just immediate, just like that thing of like, this is great, going to put it out, you know, did, you know, put it out seven inch. And then, I mean, the main the thing I remember about it was just sort of shortly after it came out. I mean, the reaction in the UK was amazing, but also internationally, like we were on MySpace at this time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is 2005, remember? So this is pre-Facebook, really. I mean, it might have existed, but no one was on it. Um, so we were all on MySpace with our top eight mates, and you know, mm-hmm. all the all the song. You know, you had your top, you had your tracks that you could put on there. And we had we made a fan page quite, you know, quite quickly, and and just getting messages all from all over the world. You know, and I remember getting one from from CSS from from Love Fox quite early on, just saying, "Oh, I listen to your track on the way to work every day. I really like it." And it was like, "Wow," you know. It's crazy, you know, like like just all these people from all over the world immediately, you know, how did they find a seven inch? Of course, at that point, we didn't realize that they didn't have the seven inch. They were just downloading it illegally from LimeWire. <laughs> 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 and hence why, you know, it doesn't quite have the streams and stuff that uh, perhaps it deserves all these years later. <laughs> so just tell us a little bit then about sort of the situation you guys were in at that moment in terms of, were you going out and performing live? Because I know you got the band together shortly after that, but were people just discovering this music just by it being played at like your DJ set as Andy or off through MySpace? What was going on at that point? I was already DJing. Just I just had, you know, I'd been sort of making music, producing kind of, you know, dance type stuff mm. um, for a while. So I had various sort of DJ gigs here and there and, you know, around Old Street and stuff. I was always playing around there and bars and, and clubs and things. So, dust. so yeah, I guess. Huh? Dust, yeah. It does. That was my... That was my that basically fed me for about two years. That gig, <laughs> it was just like playing to kind of sort of you know designers and city types and you know batting off the requests for Kylie every week, <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to get something cool in like like the Stranglers. Um, 
but yeah, um, I, I guess, I mean, I think the initial thing that people picked up on it, if that's sort of what you're kind of wondering about, I think it was just from picking it in, finding it in a record shop, you know, like Rough Trade, I remember, sold about 100 copies of the 7-inch in West London. And I think that's how most of the music industry discovered us. Mm. Um, you know, and that's the thing. But but then that things could just go become really quickly known just through through vinyl. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was nice like that. Record shops became were hubs still. And, and I think that's something very much missed, even though there's a return to vinyl. I think there is still that kind of lack of, you know, those kind of places where music is, you know, the, the, the meeting ground, you know, the little the social, the, the whatever mm. you want to call it around the campfire. It's just, yeah, you know, we've all got great memories of record shops. Those of us that are old enough. <laughs> yeah. You don't necessarily have those gatekeeper figures. Like I'm glad you mentioned Rough Trade West because that was my local rough trade because I was working in like Westbourne Grove and I used to like Mm. go there like three times a week and just buy music and buy music Mm. and I knew everybody in there quite well and I can remember getting there when I came out and just sort of like peering around trying (laughs) to find going up to the counter and going hey Nigel have you got the New York Pony Club single he's like nah it's gone (laughs) I was like me Yeah, those are moments, aren't they? Those are the moments that really stick out. You know, it's like you can talk about the headlining festivals and and all that stuff that comes later. But just sometimes those moments of like that record shop you've been going into and you really love all the staff and you love everything they do and you kind of look up to them. And then and then you're like, oh, I made a record. And they're like, wow, we love it. You know, it's amazing. You know, I mean, we actually played at the opening of Rough Trade East, didn't we? We played at the opening party of that. All gig of that, which is incredible. Yeah, but how how did that then progress from those uh, those early workings between the, t- the the pair of you as a duo to then getting Lou and Igor and Sarah involved and and taking taking New Young Pony Club sort of on the road and playing those live shows together? Well, we didn't um, want to be in like just a duo, you know. Like it, we obviously we used to go down to wherever that place was. What's what's that place called under the arches in um, Old Street where we always used to go and watch gigs? That I can Cargo. Cargo. To get a cargo and watch the bands come over from New York or watch London bands and it would be like some faceless dude in an anorak with a computer and some girl like singing away at the front and we didn't want that you know that wasn't that our touchstones which we've talked about were not that kind of I mean okay great Eurythmics amazing but that's like one among you know thousands of acts so I think it was important for both of us to have like a real live presence and to you know, we'd come from bands. We'd been in punk bands as teenagers, so we wanted that vibe of, you know, everybody going mental and our band, you know, the energy of a band on stage. So I think we started to kind of look for people and Andy booked a gig, <laughs> which was horrifying at the time. Did I? And we went, yeah, you booked a gig at that weird place in South London, which was like an empty Thai restaurant. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. I don't know how we found that place. It was a Thai... I will never do this. It was actually a Thai restaurant. I think that was it. I think you were so like nervous about it that I just thought I'm going to book the gig and because we won't do it unless I actually just book it. And yeah. you know, As many things in the life of Pony Club. If Andy doesn't actually make things happen, <laughs> 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 yeah. But then I read it as soon as, as soon as we get there on the day. I was like, why the fuck did I do this? It's like this is a really bad idea. And then 
and it was we didn't really told our friends it we didn't really want any industry or anyone to be there so really just told our friends but it was it was an amazing night it was just like you know we realized we could do it and, and everyone else kind of realized oh shit you know we can we can make uh-huh. this a really good live project even though it was essentially a studio project to start with it's like this can work so well and you know and the, and the guys involved were just all kind of perfect for that for that moment and what they did you yeah. know and obviously we went through a lot of male drummers and sarah just came in and nailed that first sort of like hi-hat schluff on the ice cream and me and andy just looked at each other and went yeah. <laughs> vibrated each other across the room yeah yeah that was good that was special definitely yeah so just talk us then about the process of Fantastic Playroom debut album, um, which came out in 2007. What's the progress then after you've sort of uh, got songs like Ice Cream and Get Go was another early one, I think, as well. So what's the sort of process in developing to, to get a whole album's worth and, uh, and release what obviously went on to become a Mercury Music Prize nominated album? Yeah, it was fun. It was really good fun that because we sort of, because really we had Ice Cream and then, and we'd been working on music, like Ty said, we'd been working on music together for a couple of years and sort of just figuring out what it is that we were and wanted to do. And I think that's really important for any band to really just kind of hone and develop the sound before embarking on it. But the thing is, when we had ice cream, it was like <laughs> we didn't have anything else really that was as good as that at that time. We had loads of different kind of ideas we'd been working on, but we didn't have anything else finished. So we really quickly had to kind of write some new stuff but we were so in a re- we were in such a great creative zone and and um i don't know just the ideas just came really quickly from most of that album just like i'd come up with a piece of music and i'd send it over to ty and then and then you know and we just sort of she'd have a vocal and it'd be like yeah this is great and i don't know it was just sort of a very fun creative process i you know i i really really kind of fondly remember that that year i guess it was like 2006 mostly we did it in thai remind me help me here what yeah kind of period was it? 2006 and i think because we were we had issues because andy was working out of home and you know very rightfully his partner said look this can't go on forever so we had to find on a studio and we had a lot of issues with that because we had no money i mean we were working out of a postage stamp cupboard somewhere in our um, rehearsal studios in Stoke Newington for a while and then we finally managed to find like a nice place uh, in Wood Green where I think the bulk of that album was kind of like shoved into shape but I think those studio issues weren't really very conducive to writing so that kind of put a little bit of a spanner in the works um, but yeah once we got into that studio uh, we, we we generated a lot of stuff I mean there were things there were tracks which will never be heard, which were supposed to be on, be on that first album that we like slaved over. And obviously because we'd written this, like we'd written this sort of pinnacle track and then every track had to be as good or better than that track. You know, you would, you, the self-flagellation again, do you know what I mean? Began. So it was, it was like that indication of excellence. Everything had to be brilliant. You know, it was all killer, no filler was the phrase we just kept on yelling mm-hmm. at each other across the studio. Yeah. But also not just, you know, 10 versions of ice cream. I think that was the yeah. other thing. It was like really, when that obviously became a track that everyone was like, it was like, okay, let's not just repeat this. It would be too easy to just try and you know do a disco beat and have Ty, you know, 
doing that kind of sexy, sultry, slightly pissed off, you know, <laughs> kind of rap, kind of rap thing she does. Um, so, so, so that was it. So it was like the challenge was on. Let's, you know, let's put some African influence in it. You know, hiding on the staircase. Let's, you know, let's put some. You know, I don't know where the get go came from, but you know that baseline was just like when it came out. It was just like, oh yeah, this is amazing. And you know, so let's let's add some more guitars. You know, let's let's just try and fit everything in there and and just really yeah have fun with it. And and add lots of claps. That was the other thing. That was yeah. our other catchphrase during that year. When in doubt, clap. <laughs> and also more cowbell always more cowbell yes. yeah. always more cowbell yeah yeah mid noughties was uh, a good time for cowbell salesman i imagine yeah mm. <laughs> cowbell somewhere in denmark street from that era i'm sure yeah i'd never i'd not i'd never seen the saturday night live sketch though at that point i had no idea what that was you know the the, the famous I, I don't even know what era that's from Will Ferrell, isn't it, in the studio? And yeah. he's like, just keeps playing really loud cowbell and the producer keeps screaming, more cowbell. And he's like, <laughs> 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 he's like playing it so loud. And he's like, no, we need more. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, but it was a bit like that in our studio, basically. <laughs> and what about uh, sort of post-release then? You know, Pete mentioned it got nominated for the Mercury Prize. Uh, you obviously went out on sort of big tours that followed, and what was the the feeling amongst yourselves sort of as the as the album came out and the reception it received? I Sorry. think it's a very weird situation because on the one hand, the music industry in the UK still functioned to a very specific paradigm, which was you know tick box, tick box, tick box, and those boxes were stuff like get a single on Radio One, play you know later with Jules Holland, get that slot at Glastonbury and so on and so on and those things weren't necessarily happening for us for various reasons um, I think partially because we were a female fronted electronic band um, and at the time that was like I don't know an eight-legged cow do you know what I mean no one seemed to understand what to do with it in the UK but then everywhere else globally, globally we were being so embraced and kind of dragged off go and do tours of like the States or Australia or, you know, like play fl flipping fashion parties halfway up skyscrapers in Hong Kong. I mean, you know, it was like this weird sort of dichotomy of, of immense success on the one hand, but kind of like in the UK, you know, we obviously had fans, but the, the sort of markers that you're supposed to tick in order to be that band were not happening for, you know, I think a variety of different reasons. So the industry was still looking. Looking back on it, I, I, I've just actually just rediscovered a load of press. I've got a big folder full of our old press, loads of NME articles and stuff, and it's just stills that that time. You know, just obsession with kind of yeah, you know, indie boy bands basically. I mean, obviously, you know, obviously the, your podcast is slightly a dedication to that <laughs> in some ways. So we're not wanting to you know but at the same time it was it was all pervasive and i think the you know they made so much money from bands like that um mm. that the and she couldn't sort of look beyond it for a long time it was very hard to break through into 
Radio One and, you know, and TV and stuff. At first, anyway, I think it was, you know, um, I think then things very suddenly sort of, I think changed quite soon after our album came out, to be honest. And suddenly there was a shift towards, you know, more kind of groove-based female vocal stuff, you know, MIA, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, you can have those sort of, you know, guitar sort of indie boy bands like you were saying there. But then, you know, when we're going out to, you go to the gig, but then on a Saturday night you go out to a club and you end up listening to to people like yourself. So it's, um, you know, people who are into that music were having the best of both worlds when they were going to gigs or going clubbing. So it's just strange, really, I guess, that the industry didn't sort of recognise that or celebrate that. I think in the cities that was the case. But when you went out to the provinces, as it Mm. were, there was still that very sharp delineation, which we discovered when we were DJing more than when we were playing. You know, you'd go to wherever, Gurn Mills or somewhere like that, and they'd be like, oh, you're playing in... (laughs) So you're not allowed to play anything that has a disco beat and then you're like <gasps> racking your dj bag trying to find something that's all like your one block party track it's like right, <laughs> did you say gurn mills yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean turnless turnless would have actually been was actually i think we did dj they're very receptive but i know what you're saying you're, you're, you're talking about the more kind of main the high street kind of you know sort of Bolton yeah. Saturday night club kind of indie night kind of thing. The indie night in I don't know Chipping Norton if there was one or Wrexham yeah. or you know yeah, yeah. that and they're like I got a load of kids turn up and they wanted to hear you know the Libertines and the Strokes and mm. they definitely didn't want to hear anything with a disco beat and they'd sulk if you played anything and then you'd basically get turfed out by the manager. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So it was, you know, that, again, it was there. And I think if you were in a city, you probably wouldn't see it. And it all felt very cosmopolitan. Like, yeah, I can go out and listen to, you know, X, Y band at a gig and then go directly to a club and listen to a Rihanna track and be completely happy. But in terms of the mainstream and the sort of gatekeepers of the mainstream, they were looking, you know, much more sort of nationally. And I don't think that move had actually happened in the sort of collective psyche yet. It was still mm. very like, oh, we wear skinny jeans and black T-shirts and they wear lots of colours and that's bad. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I got some, definitely, I remember DJing once in Glasgow after a gig and couldn't get a cab home after the gig and having to walk through Glasgow with my purple jeans on. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> let's just say it was hairy, hairy, a hairy walk home. <laughs> yeah I think that's, that's, that's really interesting like I think you, you've hit a nail on the head there Titus certainly as you were saying that I was thinking I don't remember it like this but yeah sort of being sort of in that sort of London scene at the time it just did feel completely normal like you were part of the scene and, and uh, you know completely accepted but yeah really interesting to feel that you didn't necessarily have that same um, sort of necessary acceptance further afield but uh, what about you know we Briefly mentioned the the phrase earlier that you I think you wrinkled your nose at, but we, we've got to bring up the, the phrase again. Sort of the new rave, the new rave scene. You were sort of again one of those bands that were kind of touted as being part of it. You know, went on that enemy indie rave tour with Claxons and CSS Sunshine Underground. What were your what is your sort of feeling on that tag, that label? Uh, that I, I dare say quite a lot of bands have a similar reaction to that, that, that you do. 
Well, it just didn't feel like it was actually, it felt like lazy journalism. It felt like a guy who had never heard any of our stuff or spoken to us or read any interviews or anything, just looked at like three girls in a band with two guys not wearing black and went, meh, new rave. That goes in that pile. And do you know what I mean? Like there were bands who were obviously new rave and loved rave, specifically loved all that stuff from like, I don't know, 1989 to 91 that had loads of sirens in it and reveled in that stuff and wanted to do cover versions of that stuff. But that wasn't where we came from. Ironically, we came from the previous wave of people that wanted to wear bright clothes and dance, which was disco. But, you know, that was of little interest to people who need to compartmentalise things so that they're easier to sell or slag off. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. At the time, our management were very much like, look, it's a tag, it'll disappear. It's an opportunity for you to be heard by more people, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you're, you're paying these people to advise you, so you do it. But I think in retrospect, we were very much like, well, that was a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Because basically, you know, there were a lot more people who perhaps we would have reached had we not had that tag, who immediately just wrote us off as like, oh, this is for kids. You look like kids TV presenters. You dress like kids TV presenters. So this is for kids. That's how it felt anyway. Yeah, yeah interesting. These uh, labels do get thrown away or thrown around very easily, don't they? And the uh, problem is sometimes they stick and can have a impact on yeah how the band is received in various aspects but cool that's part one done and when we come back we'll talk more about new young pony club hi this is taita and andy from the young pony club and you're listening to the boys in the band podcast okay here's how miro works see it's amazing what's everyone doing at david's desk Ever since marketing started using Miro's collaborative online whiteboard, he thinks all our other teams should sign up. Why? He says Miro's making his meetings disappear. And if every team gets on it, that means even less meetings. They're using Miro for brainstorms, mind maps, customer research. So could we use Miro instead of having another 100 meetings for every round of feedback? Yep. You can comment, react to ideas, even leave a recording on the board. And what about presentations? There are Miro templates for that. How do you know so much about Miro? I've actually been using it all along. I just used a Miro board to plan the best vacation. Okay, I'm on board. See how Miro users save up to 80 hours every year by meeting less and doing more. Get on board at Miro.com with three boards free forever. That's M I R O.com. You're listening to the Boys in the Band podcast. For more naughty nostalgia, Check out our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages and make sure you hit subscribe to the podcast for more interviews like this. Welcome back to the Boys and Band podcast where we have got Taita and Andy from New Young Pony Club on the line. Um, Taita, you mentioned just uh, towards the end of the last part about gigging halfway up a skyscraper in Hong Kong. And I was going to ask you about well, how the music went down in other countries and clearly it went down well, but you got any other Good stories about that sort of bizarre gigs or sort of strange situations you guys got into taking the music around the world. But, uh, you know, again, having we obviously had crossover appeal, even if in the UK people weren't very sure about it. So, like, for example, doing the Katy Perry tour, I mean, that was absolutely Mm. bonkers. 
in 2011, you're basically playing what we used to call it was the heartbeat because it's like 13 year old girl, 13 year old girl, 13 year old girl, parent, 13 year old girl, hey guy, 13 year old girl, 13 year old girl. You know, I mean, that was crazy being part of that and seeing kind of seeing how the other half live. I mean, she was like the most famous person on the planet. We did Paris Fashion Week. You know, we did a gig in Paris with her at that time and we went to see um, some fashion shows that she appeared at. And I can remember like her appearing at one end of the runway to sit down and we were sort of in the crowd somewhere. And Kanye West was about three feet away from her being completely ignored by the world's press because she was there. So, you know, seeing seeing that kind of stuff was always really eye opening. And I think it really, if anything, it really solidified our understanding of what we wanted and where we were and the fact that we'd never really wanted that kind of like oh fame at any cost you know that kind of thing but then on a more kind of like oh crazy tip um we did a gig I can't even remember what year it was 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 probably the same year maybe 2012 or 2011 in Kazakhstan (laughs) halfway up a mountain and um (laughs) there was like this crazy like Dr. No style complex with all the windows blown out, you know, sort of amazing 60s building, um, which you weren't allowed in because it was derelict. And then like another 200 yards up the mountain, there was this like really grim sort of Cold War hotel where everything was beige, including the food. <laughs> and that was, you know, where we were stationed. We did our sound check to this incredible vista of like mountains. And as we're happily sound checking, this guy comes out of the trees waving a cutlass and starts doing all this kind of like, I don't know, saber dancing in the like, do our sound check. And then we start like sort of chatting with him over the PA and he's like, oh, you're doing a gig here. I'll come down later. We're like, (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember that. I do. I do remember being in Kazakhstan and wandering around, um, you know, in in this main city. I don't even know what the name of it is. I'm sorry. That's terrible. But but the capital city of Kazakhstan anyway is I think where we were staying. Um, and we were just sort of doing some sightseeing and three policemen walk over and sort of like giving us this like, who are you strangers, like outsiders. And our, our kind of guide just like took them off, you know, a little way, you know, around the corner. And we just saw him like handing over money. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you band, you're playing here, pay me some money. <laughs> the Kazakhstan way. Yeah. We hadn't brought our passports out of the hotel. So I think he was first like, Do you have ID? And we were like, No. <laughs> and he said, okay. And then trudged off with his shoulders down to talk to these cops and hand over loads of cash. Because otherwise they could have arrested us for not having ID. And then there would have been a report. So yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's how you got Harry. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. No, there was loads of there was loads of great trips like that. Sri Lanka we played in and Croatia and oh man. Where else did we play? Some crazy places. Um, just so cool, isn't it? I guess that music can take you from, as you say, that sort of empty Thai restaurant in South London to these uh yeah, sort of unusual places that I guess you never expected to to be playing. No, absolutely, absolutely. It was, yeah, it is. It's it's amazing, and I, I, every time we got an invite to play somewhere like that, it was always kind of like, how do they even know? Mm. Just how does it get there? Yeah, Colombia was a was a was an interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, lots of great places. Yeah, amazing, amazing. 
Let's um, just jump to the, that second album then, guys. You, the, the Optimist came out in 2010. And um, I don't know, certainly as, as, as listeners ourselves, I think you can hear a certain development sort of in your artistry musically. Um, so what were your reflections on, on how you uh, progressed into that, uh, that follow-up album? Well, Ty basically took me kicking and screaming into that album because I was just like, well, it wasn't so much kicking and screaming, it was more just like, pick me off the floor, I'll be honest. You know, I, I felt so, so broken after all the touring from the first record and, and all the kind of excitement and all the things that had happened. <laughs> but trying to go back into the studio with just the same kind of level of naivety and, and enjoyment was really, really hard. Um, and I, yeah, I was, I was sort of, I was struggling. I was struggling to come up with ideas and yeah, Ty really kind of took the reins and just was like, right, we're going down this path, you know, we're doing, we, you know, we come in with baseline ideas and we went to see Susie, didn't we, around that time, um, got to see Susie Sue. That was an amazing night. And, you know, that inspired one track and yeah, it was just sort of trying to find, trying to find new inspiration. Um, which you think you get from kind of being out on the road and being on tour, but actually was 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 really it's really difficult to 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 get back to a place of kind of that fun creativity that we found in the first album. Partly, I think, because we felt like the ground had shifted, and partly the ground shifted, you know, not solely. You know, I'm not going to sort of take claim for like changing the music scene, but but I think. You know, I think definitely, you know, we, we did feel like there was a lot of bands that came after us that sort of did, you know, sound a little bit like us. And it, that just, you know, there was a natural shift happening anyway, as we said earlier, but there was just a lot more stuff that felt like it was kind of just a kind of deadpan female vocal um, kind of thing over a groove. And, and so it was like, well, how do we, how do we, we, how do we reclaim this space, I guess, or how do we find somewhere new or, how do you just find the inspiration that we'd got from the first record? So, um, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a hard one. It's probably, you know, can be, you know, you can tell from listening to the record, it's, it's very different, but I think it, we wanted to kind of show that we, we, we were, we could really write songs and, and, and production as well, I think was important for me just to kind of up the game a little bit with that and, and involve Sarah as well, a bit more and involve, you know, Lou, Eagle wasn't in the band at that point and kicked him out by then. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you know, that was my, that's my memories from it. Yeah. I mean, it was, as Andy said, I think there was so much pressure as well because again, you know, all right, the UK might've been a little bit reticent in embracing us, but overseas there was, it was just so like feral that the, the sense of like what's coming next when can we get another record and we hadn't really sort of stopped I think we had 30 days that we weren't on planes or on stages in 2007 and then 2008 was pretty similar 2009 we kind of started saying no to stuff um so we could just start like trying to get this record together and then that co coincided for me with the end of a really really long relationship so I was not in a great place um having kind of said to myself I'm not writing any songs about relationships on the first record I was just like ah! <laughs> <laughs> do 
just wailing into my notebook a lot. And that was really hard. And then, you know, Andy was really burnt out. I was really burnt out. But I think for me, it was about going back to, you know, some of the bands that I mentioned much earlier on in the podcast, like all the sort of shoegaze stuff that I grew up with, just that sort of multi-layered sound. Um, Yeah, and wanting to kind of prove something, kind of go, look, all of you leather jacket wearing bastards, we can actually write songs and we're going to make an album that you love and you're going to, love but also hate the fact that you love it (laughs) you know it did sort of feel like yeah we had something to prove to ourselves to to other people um and I think it gave us kind of in the wake of it we I think we were a bit shocked that we'd made it um and maybe slightly uncomfortable with some elements of it which didn't which felt very different from the kind of optimism and the sort of party spirit of the first record it felt maybe like we were showing off the the truth of who we are which is angst-ridden monsters obviously Mm -hmm. um you know that was very much uh, front and center with the optimist but I I mean I have to say for me for me personally it's the record that I'm proudest of I think because I feel like we really pushed ourselves to you know do such to create these kind of soundscapes and, you know, just to sort of throw our Pony Club rule book out and go, yeah, okay, great. Let's have, let's have free jazz sax on that. Or what, what would this sound like with a massive multi-layered choral arrangement, you know, and then getting Craig Sylvie as well to come in at the end and kind of mix it with us. And he moved all of his stuff into our studio, which was incredible, incredible experience. Um, yeah, that was a real highlight, actually. I, I had forgotten about that weirdly but um that was that was craig silver if you don't know him sort of arcade fire mixer and oh god i don't know who else he's worked with loads of amazing artists super uh super furry animals and i mean i'm missing loads out googling yeah. but um <laughs> but he's a lovely man and really and really was just like and and, and was really like have really keen to work on the record and was really excited to work with us and and as were we obviously to work with him and yeah, the first mixing of the first record had been a bit of a kind of sterile affair. Like somehow the management had sort of worked out that to do it while we were on tour, which I, I in hindsight I thought was, you know, uh, a bit mean actually. Now being in management myself, I like hold on a minute. I, at the time I just thought, oh, it's scheduling or whatever. But now I realise it's like, no, you could have not done that, and that was annoying. But yeah. um, but you know, yeah. Craig was in our studio he, you know he moved the stuff in and we just got to be there every day and just check in and you know and listen to what he was doing and yeah really um sonically just just made it I think in terms of production sonics I think it's 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 you know, my my kind of favorite album too as well yeah definitely yeah obviously you sounds like you both put so much into it in the end sort of from the your starting position to to how you delivered it um but what do you remember ourselves we put it out ourselves because we've left modular yeah. by that so we paid for everything mm. you know we, we could be much more in control of the whole process but it was absolutely nerve-wracking because that was you know all the money we had basically yeah that was a mistake in the end that was a mistake <laughs> we should have just found another label to put it out but we we we'd got this we'd done this big advert and we just thought yeah, fuck it. Let's bet on ourselves. Let's just, you know, who needs a label? Let's, you know, let's like be independent. It'll be amazing. 
and it was just like oh god so much work involved in like trying to you know having to sort out your own videos and your own you know like like remixes and and everything and the management were great but you know they'd never done a self-release before really so you know it, it wasn't ideal from that respect but yeah again you know i felt like there was a much greater ownership looking back on the whole thing like of you know we 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 we, we yeah great accomplishment i think is what is is the biggest feeling from that record i guess you mentioned um so you're putting it out yourselves at this point but that initial urgency to to get it out you mentioned that sort of came from you if it wasn't a record company sort of pressuring say you've got to get this out you know while strike while iron's hot where did that urgency actually come from yourself well, i think it was also that kind of um you know the kind of beatles beach boys thing that there were lots of our peers were just it felt like they were just churning out great music and you know, in as much as we were slightly older, I think there was a little bit of pressure definitely in our heads, self-inflicted somewhat to keep up with that. But also, you know, we still had people bombing, like sliding into our DMs on a daily basis. Say, when's the next record coming? I've been Argentina, I'm waiting for it. You know, so, you you know, there was a sense well, that yeah. they out there baying for more music and you didn't well, want to management like... i mean literally that was that was the conversation we had every time we spoke to our manager was like so when's it finished because you yep. know the fans are kind of slipping away you know and that was literally yeah. like kind of what, and you know and he wasn't wrong i mean i'm you know i don't want to sort of you know he was right you know i mean i think it was it's very difficult to maintain you know like like i mean that now it's even harder but but yeah it's very you've got to kind of you've got to keep 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 you know keep feeding that beast and but we just, you know, we just weren't that kind of band. And so, you know, that that's, you know, that's how it was. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? This demand, I guess, for more and more music. But, you know, we've already spoken about the amount of touring you were doing in between the first and second albums, and I guess between the second and third albums as well. So, yeah, there's not a lot, it's <laughs> not enough time, is it? And, you know, if you're saying yeah. you're feeling burnt out going into the second album, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's the demand is almost too much. Definitely. And I think when you if you, when you're not with a major label, because a major label have processes in place mm. to buffer the experience, it's like, OK, so it's going to be maybe 18 months till the next record. So we're going to, you know, get these three hot young remixes to remix these three tracks and then we're going to put them out again or, you know, we're going to do do this collab with this person. Mm. But, you know, there wasn't really any kind of scope for that, I think, because we were so burnt out, even if there had been we would probably have pushed it away and just gone, I really just need to have those three hours of sleep. I really can't spend <laughs> three hours on the phone to some guy in Dallas while he remixes a track. So yeah, you know, it, it was what it was essentially. And mentioned the third album there, NYPC. Obviously it was just back to you two for this one. So tell us more about this chapter. Oh, what do we say about this chapter, Tater? <laughs> 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 well, third record, it was like, Okay, we've done the deep, dark kind of, you know, sort of introspective, wrenching our guts out and our hearts out onto the table and digging deep and, you know, and had amazing reviews for that. That's one of the other things I turned up in my press folder, actually, um, was uh, the amazing enemy review for The Optimist. Yeah. Um, and, and loads of press had loved it. But, you know, but the fans uh, had been the reaction had been a lot, especially on tour as well, had been sort of, oh, you know, like, what's this? Like, you know, like liking it, but also just like, sort of, you could sense it was that we want, you know, we want to dance, you know, we want, we want, we want the fun. And so 
you know, and then we kind of missed the fun as well a little bit. You know, we missed that kind of just, just sort of, yeah, you know, that's what it was. That's where it all kind of started. Just like, just great grooves and, and, and everything. So it was sort of trying to get back to that, but without losing what we'd learned from The Optimist and, and you know, all the great things that we'd, we'd learned from that in terms of songwriting, in terms of production. Um, you know, it was sort of like, let's, okay, let's try and, you know, do the best of both, basically. I think it's the best way to sum it up. Yeah. And there's always a hangover on every album from the previous album. Mm. So like Chaos really should have been on Fantastic Playroom. And I think, which one is it? I can't remember. Things there's like the... you. Oh. Things like you. Yeah. That was supposed to be on The Optimist that then ended up on NYPC. So there's this, yeah. always this kind of weird thread of of moving forward. But I mean, you know, it was such a weird time because obviously the music industry was massively in flux. Everyone had cottoned on to the whole LimeWire thing. It's like, oh great, you've just spent 150 grand to release this record and I don't 70,000 people have downloaded it for free today. Yeah. <laughs> and no one seems to understand like, it's particularly for bands doing stuff themselves that you, you doing that as a fan means that they then can't put out another record. So financially things, you were very different and it was really tough just trying to kind of marshal all the, you know, the, the, the financial capacity to do anything without yeah. a label point, I think. So it was a very different experience as songwriters, but as songwriters who were doing things for themselves, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think by this point, we'd, we'd well and truly realised we were an indie band, rather as in indie label band, as opposed to, you know, major, because Modular was sort of half a major when we signed with them. They were had a deal with Universal. And, you know, there was this kind of, oh, you know, maybe it's... A, I mean, it was marketed like a pop album, actually, Fantastic Playroom. You know, we had Ireland. It was on Ireland in the UK. So it was... You know, it was like there was that that was the thing we started out. It's like, oh, maybe it's gonna shoot off in the pop direction. And do you remember all that discussion about sorry, I'm going back to Fantastic Playroom now, I know, but I will come full I will come back. But like there was all that discussion about FAN from the first oh. record and that potentially being a massive like single. And we got this like email from the head of Violin Records with all this kind of crazy suggestions about how to make it a hit, which yeah. we ignored, of course. We 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 obviously ignored, of course, but um Let's get Timberland to reproduce it and shout his name over. <laughs> it was that. It was that sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. But so so come to, to come to three number three. I think it's like you know we 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 were like okay you know we we're, we're obviously an indie band and indie you know we're in that sphere of indie music. But as I just said, yeah, the indie music scene was having a really really tough time because streaming. Was there was a lost decade for that for that for that for that whole yeah that kind of whole area of music, um, the kind of mid level you know there was a, a lost decade really I think of, of income, which made it really hard. Yeah, so went to the wall like you know people who you toured with who were just like giving it up left right and centre because no one could afford to do it mm. anymore. And that was sort of really horrifying and eye opening and it made you kind of go shit. You know how are we going to continue? Yeah. Yeah, so there was, you know, there was a lot of that kind of nervousness about, you know, like finances and new management involved. And I don't know, it was it was just kind of a, I think there was, there was, you know, definitely, I mean, 
I think it's definitely a feeling of like, look, we're not ready to stop this yet. So let's just see what the fuck we can do. <laughs> you know, there was, I'll be honest, there wasn't some big grand master plan for that album. It was more just like, look, this is, this, you know, we still like working together. We still, we still like each other. We don't hate each other yet. And so let's just keep doing this. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm proud of that record too. It's amazing. You know, it's amazing songs. Some of our best songs, I think are on that record. You Used to Be A Man's probably one of the greatest things we've ever written. Um, you know, Sure Is The Sun, I think, is up there, you know, for me, top five. Like, and so, you know, it perhaps, it perhaps is, you know, as an album, it doesn't have that same kind of cohesiveness of the first two, but I think there's some amazing tracks on there that I'm really, really proud of. Um, my Gun, you know, that's just like, we were obsessed. Oh my God, we used to listen to that obsessively, didn't we? Loved it. It was like, one of those things where even after we'd finished, even after we'd made the track, we still would like put it on and be like, oh, this is great, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's happened, a, a record. And that's how we would gauge whether they were any songs were good enough because you listen to a song so many times when you're writing it. And if you're listening to it for the thousandth time and you're still going, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, this is going on the record, obviously. <laughs> so, yeah. That I, I absolutely agree with you 100%. There are some amazing tracks on that record. And every time I go through this kind of like, oh, music's like a terrible boyfriend who I don't want to talk to anymore. And then I will like go back and listen to all of the records, but definitely the third one as well. And, and yeah, I'm like super proud of those songs and they still sound amazing. So, yeah, brilliant. Good. Yeah. It sounds like you were still, you know, absolutely loving, loving your music, loving working together. So let's move it on to why was that the last, last release? What happened next? Oh, that was like Sisyphus pushing the bloody rock up the hill. <laughs> I mean, you literally couldn't get arrested. It was very hard to, you know, just kind of, they're obviously rabid fans all over the world going, please come, please come, please come. But without a label, you know, the, you didn't have the infrastructure to get anywhere. You couldn't pay for anything. Obviously, the second record had been like streamed to death, so we made no money from it. So there was no cash of, of finances to do a tour of the States or to, you know, to go to these places where people wanted us to go. There was just nothing in the pot. So, you know, we tried to get to, get to various different places and we, we, you know, we managed to do a bit, but it was just, you know, it was just really, really hard to do anything, which was really, it was, you know, very disheartening and, and, you know, sad at the time. And I think it just kind of made us go, okay, well, maybe, maybe the world doesn't need another Pony Club record. Yeah. Shame that it comes to end in that way, really, isn't it? But, um, well, 15 years since Fantastic Playroom next year, reunion, perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Might be a bit too early for that. And everything. So who knows? (laughs) Sure, it'll happen at some point. I mean, I think we definitely want to do like one more, one last gig. Can't go out, can't leave this planet without playing ice cream <laughs> one more time, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I never say never. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, watch this space for that. We, we'll uh, we'll be down the front. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andy, you're you're um you're still in 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 the music industry yourself now. You mentioned earlier, you sort of manage artists. You you've got your own own label, right? Is that correct? Uh, I do have a label as well now. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's quite new. It's just, you know, just sort of like one off releases, really. It's not, um, you know, I don't have any ambitions to, you know, break the next Tame Impala, to be honest. It's some, um, that's quite, that's quite a big 
sort of uh yeah you know late late like i really respect the, the the labels that are still going you know the indie labels i guess i'm talking about here um obviously the majors are still going because they've got all the you know they've they own the bgs and abba and all that stuff so they just basically can survive off that forever but um you know the labels that have, have, have built you know have even built themselves up over the last 10 15 years you know i mean that's really really hard it's been a really hard environment to do that in so so yeah you know i'm not i'm not sort of i don't want to get into that game but um no management is the really thing that i really enjoy i really all the lessons that i've learned through this band through pony club and you know and things before that um are just so useful uh to you know to, to in what i do now um just being able to say to an artist i i've i've been there you know i've 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 had to make a second record after having a Mercury nomination and, you know, getting, you know, touring the world. I've, I've had to, you know, fire a manager. I've had to blah, 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 you know, like, or fire an agent maybe is better. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a better example. <laughs> <laughs> don't advise them, don't advise them to fire, fire me, but you know, like just, just, just to go, you know, just to have been on the other side, I think it's, it's really, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, all the, all the kind of experience I've had is, is really, you know really great and and especially self-releasing the, the second and third records that was i mean you know baptism of fire releasing optim the optimist you know that was just incredible like what we learned from that but yeah you know i'm, I'm enjoying it i love it good 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 um tater uh andy thanks so much for coming onto the podcast it's been great to chat just before we let you go we've got three final questions in our encore um, and Andy, I might send the first one to you because you mentioned sort of uh, some of the dodgy nights you ended up still DJing when people were requesting songs that you didn't particularly want to play. But what was the best sort of night out back in the day, whether that was DJing or going dancing yourself? Oh, um, my God, that's a question. I mean, one night that always, always comes back that like the whole band can remember as well was um, our first, I think our first trip to Melbourne. And oh. there was a club there. I can't remember the name of it. It's closed down now, isn't it? Do you remember the name, Ty? No! <laughs> <laughs> Desperately trying it, to remember. <laughs> it was... But, the, what's that? Honky-tonks, yeah. Honky-tonks. Hey. Honky yeah. Tonks. Yeah, fame, really famous spot. And there was, like, there was decks in the female toilets and... You know, like everyone would go and like if, if if it got busy enough and wild enough, then like someone would get on the decks in there and start a second <laughs> party. And you know, they had these like bags of bags like rave juice. I mean, it was you know clearly of the time, but they, <laughs> these like cocktails that they hand out in bags with little kind of glow sticks in it. And I mean, it was you know, it was sort of like like naff, naff, but also you know but also really really fun it was like just to go across be a, you know i think because we were on the other side of the world as well and you know it was just a, it was just a really kind of fun night oh it was incredible it was incredible because yeah. i remember it, like the toilets were going off like i can remember members of van she like crowd surfing across the crowd in the women's toilets into <laughs> girls in the cubicles who you'd like then hear a bit of screaming and then five seconds later the door would open and everybody would be sort of dancing on the loose <laughs> and I just was sort of thought I wonder what's going on in the club and went walked out of the the toilets and went into the main club and the, it looked like it had been done by Ikea designers it had all this Norwegian pine let's say 
paneling everywhere. It was totally empty because everyone was in the women's toilets. <laughs> it was incredible. People dancing in the sinks, rolling around, snogging on the floor. I mean, and then we left that the the club at like five and the sky was full of hot air balloons. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Really remember that. And it was just this yeah. kind of real kind of like, whoa, this is great. Oh, yeah, this is what being in a band is supposed to be about. Yeah, incredible night out. Um, yeah. But ne- next up on the encore, guys, though, is one of your nights. Can you pick out the best gig New Young Pony Club ever played? Oh, mm. God. That's harder to uh, actually remember. What <laughs> <laughs> um, well, kind of like on stage? Yeah, your f- favorite gig you ever played, favorite moment on stage, perhaps. Yeah. Do you remember being dropped by the crowd in Roskilde? Oh, when you crowd surfed, and then they dropped <laughs> they dropped you onto the barrier, and you had a bruise for about three months I, afterwards. I had a massive bruise, but I basically was like standing on the like the separator in between like the security bit at the front of the gig and the crowd, and about five or six girls all hanging on to me, and I thought, well, this is totally fine singing away and then they dropped me (laughs) (laughs) i had to carry on the gig on adrenaline thinking i may have broken my leg here Um, but yeah i just had a huge bruise um there was so many like there's little moments from so many different gigs yeah that's it you can't i mean that definitely wasn't our best gig by a long shot but Mm. it was those kind of little things that you know that you remember more than just that one special gig i mean i I actually was talking about this the other day coco the first time we played we headlined coco was was pretty amazing because it was that moment of like hometown sold out massive venue and and we'd been to see a band there about three months before and and um you know someone from a label had said oh you know you guys probably be headlining here soon and we were like oh come on fuck off you know that's Mm -hmm. not gonna happen and then, you know, and there we were headlining it. And it was, yeah, really, well, that was really special. So I'll never forget that one. Yeah. yeah. There were lots of those, like, sort of ticking, again, box ticking moments, like playing the Astoria. I'm really glad we did that because mm. obviously it's not there anymore. But then played the whole set, which was supposed to be like an hour and I think 35 minutes because the adrenaline was so high. <laughs> <laughs> it's a problem when you're in a band. is Other people will watch and go, oh, my God, that was amazing. But you come off stage and you're like, oh, why, why? <laughs> intense yeah i can imagine um the final question in the encore another tricky one what's the song you're proudest of oh god you really like these tough questions don't Mm, you yeah (laughs) make you think like picking your favorite child isn't it (laughs) um i'll go for the get-go i've always loved that song i don't know particularly why it stands out for me, but I just think it's just kind of one of those just incredible, you know, like for me, just the creation of it was just really, really, um, I don't know. It's really special. I don't know. I can't really explain it, but yeah, that's what I'm going to go for. I'm going to go for the optimist just because that choral arrangement at the end was such a labor of love. And it's, I think it's really transcendent. And then with the free sort of free jazz, David Bowie style sax solo, I was like, yes. <laughs> You got everything you wanted in the song. <laughs> it was like Christmas Day came together. <laughs> I must have been I must have been very like tired or asleep in the production 
role that day because I just was like, Ronnie's just going, yes, yes, whatever you want, yes, <laughs> let's do it, yeah, fine, you can have that. Quiet, yeah, whatever, have it, I don't care anymore. <laughs> Brilliant. Guys, it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure to hear your reflections on, on the Pony Club story. It's been really interesting, really appreciate you giving us your time. So, uh, Ty, Andy, thanks very much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. We made USAA insurance for veterans like James. When he found out how much USAA was helping members save, he said, It's time to switch. We'll help you find the right coverage at the right price. USAA. What you're made of, we're made for. Restrictions apply.